Hello, and thank you for listening to this message from Pastor Gary Ellard here at Grace Bible Fellowship in Front Royal, Virginia. Today, Pastor Gary challenges us to make sure our faith is based on the truth of what Christ has done for us, rather than our own ideas of what Christianity is or should be. Here's Pastor Gary to tell us more. Uh, My subject this morning is put everything to the test. In 1 Thessalonians, the Bible says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now this is God's will that every day that we face, we rejoice and we give thanks for God that all for all that he has given us, and he's given us a lot. So do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterance, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Put everything to the test. Look carefully at what you really believe. Now, the Bible says here, now these things happen as examples for us so that we would crave evil things as they are also craved. I want you, I want you to notice something here. We're going to get into what the Bible refers to us as the difference between law and grace. Uh, Paul is warning us not to quench the spirit. We're not to quench the spirit or smother the Holy Spirit, as some would say. Uh, In other words, we should not ignore or toss aside the gifts of the Holy Spirit gives to us. Here he mentions prophecy. In 1 Corinthians, he mentions speaking in tongues. In Romans, he mentions the law. And Paul says that the law is holy, just, and good. Sometimes it gets a little confusing because we say that the law has been done away with. And so there are some confusing scriptures when it comes to prophecy, speaking in tongues, and the law. And so in the next month or two, I'm I'm going to cover some difficult things. We're going to put to the test what we actually believe. Do we actually believe what the Bible says? Or do we believe what we think the Bible says? Or how we interpret what the Bible says? When you look at Christianity, it seems like we're divided in our our fundamental beliefs, really. There are a large group of Christians, very large group, in fact, who feel that you can lose your salvation. And then there is another Part of Christianity says, no, you can't. And so you can go on down the line through our belief system. And when you are asked, um, what about your faith? What do you believe? Well, it's interesting. It would be interesting if each one would stand and say, well, this is what I believe. 
And a lot of times we're not sure exactly what we believe. We have an idea of it, but we, maybe we can't point to a scripture, and that's okay. But we need to be able to stand with confidence in what we believe. So Paul goes on and he explains that the law was given for us to lead us to Christ. That's why we had the law, to lead us to Christ. And uh, so he tells us to test everything. Test it all. Make sure that you know deep down inside what you believe. And in the book of Hebrews, it clarifies the good news of the new covenant. It mentions the superiority of the new covenant. The old covenant under Moses focused on a physical building where they would come and worship. The people failed in their agreements that they made with God, the covenants that they made, over and over and over again. Now, if we, when we look at our lifestyle, when we look at how we believe, we probably feel the same way. We probably feel that we, we fail over and over and over again. And the, the Jewish people, they had what they called the Book of Law. And in the Book of Law, there were six, 613 different laws that they were encouraged to, to not only believe, but to practice. So... Here we have 613 laws, and they tried as hard as they could to do it, and nobody ever accomplished it. Now, they had limited access to God in the Old Testament. They went to the temple to meet with God, just like we come to church to hear about God. The agreement that was made and the covenants that were made were sort of based on fear. There's a lot of Christians who their Christianity is based on fear. They feel that if they don't perform, God is not going to be happy with them. And uh, if they do it over and over and over again, God is not going to be not only going to be unhappy, but he's going to be very disappointed and a lot of people associate things that happen, the circumstances in their life that happen, with how they're performing. You know, if, if I was just uh, doing better, maybe I wouldn't be going through the trials and tribulations that I'm going through. If I would just give more, maybe I wouldn't be going through the financial difficulties that I may be facing. And so we have all of this built up in us that we were designed to perform. All of us. I mean, we train our children to perform. We give them jobs to do so that uh, we give them allowances so they, we get, they get paid for what they're doing. And all through life, we get paid for what we're doing. And so when it comes to religion, it seems like it would only be natural that we would perform well to get from God, get his approval, get his blessings, and then we would live 
what we call the abundant life in Christ. Now, the writer of Hebrews explains to us that we should let go of the old way because this new covenant recorded in Hebrews is superior. It's greater than the old. The old covenant was a covenant administered through the law between God and Israel. But it still was resting on the promise of a Messiah. Now, the Old Testament and the covenants of the Old Testament were built and based on prophecies, promises that God made to them if they would obey, sacrifices, circumcision, Sabbath, the Passover lamb, and many other types and ordinances. All of these were signs for that time to instruct and build up God's people in their faith. That's what all of these things were designed to do, were to build up their faith in the coming Messiah. Now, in 1 Corinthians uh, 6 through 10, now these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. And then in verse 7, the Bible says this. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now, it doesn't make really much sense to us when we first read that. But what it is, it's referring to when they worshiped the golden calf. When Moses went up to meet with God. The people, they ate and they drank and then they got stood up to play. In other translations, it says, and they stood up to dance. And that's what they were doing. They were dancing around the golden calf. Now, in verse 8, the Bible says this, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Now, 23,000 died in one day. And so when people read the Old Testament, they wonder, what in the world is going on? What is God doing? 23,000 people died in one day. And this is, of course, referring to Numbers 21 and 25. And it's a story about when the Israelite men engaged in immoral sex with the Moabite women. And it also had to do with the people complaining against Moses and God about the hardships of the desert. And the Bible says that 23,000 people died in one day. And then the Bible says in verse 9, nor let us try, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Their complaining and dislike of the food that God provided for them they started complaining because they were having it every day. And uh, they complained against Moses, but they complained against God. And here, God had provided this marvelous miracle, took them out of Egyptian bondage, took them through the Red Sea. They saw the most spectacular thing that any human being has ever seen. They saw the power of God like nobody has ever seen before. 
And yet they complained. They were not happy with God. They grumbled. And it was really a reminder of God's patience. Israel was insisting on retaining the old. They wanted that old appetite, the old desires that they had in Egypt. They wanted their old customs. They had worked in paganism into their worship. They wanted all of what God did not want them to have. And then God provided for them a life that he would make sure that he would take care of them for the rest of their life. And it was all done in love. And yet the people did not understand. And the Bible says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instructions upon whom the end of the ages have come. So the Bible says that all of these examples that are in the Old Testament were written for us as an example of what God was doing. Now, the problem is, is that Paul, when he was writing the Corinthians, Paul believed that Jesus Christ would come in his day. He thought that he would be alive when Jesus Christ came. Now, when I became a Christian, I thought the very same thing. I never thought that I would ever reach the age of 30, never would see my sons go to college. I thought for sure the Lord was going to come before that time. And Paul, he wanted to get, reach as many men and women as he possibly could to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read his letters, it's interesting how he told the people not to have any children anymore. He told them to be satisfied with whatever, whatever situation they were in because pretty soon the Lord was going to come. And, and the Lord tarried, and he's been tarrying ever since. That was 2,000 years ago. Every generation was looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Today, as we look at technology, everybody thinks to themselves, my, this is it. Look at knowledge increasing, running to and fro throughout the world. Jesus Christ is going to come soon. Every generation has felt that way. Yes, we're getting closer, that's for sure. There's no question about it. And so the urgency is that we would reach as many people as we possibly can with the, Lord, with the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But one thing that Paul warned against that I never caught when I first became a Christian, he warned against the legalistic lifestyle that depicts Christianity as submission to a large list of do's and don'ts. And this is what has hurt Christianity through the years, since the very beginning. And people back up and they look at, they look at all of these different churches and all what they, what they, their list of do's and don'ts, and they just say, you know, that's not for me. I don't get that. I don't understand that. And so 
Some have tried to mix law and grace so that they, they could get a little bit of a clearer picture, but it just gets more and more confusing. And so what we want to do is clear up some of that confusion. We want to make sure what we believe is what God wants us to believe, and then we're going to hold on to that. That's going to be our central, that's going to be our centerpiece. That's going to stabilize us, and no matter what happens to us, no matter what this world throws at us, we'll have that anchor. And that's what we want. In the Old Testament, there were various covenants. They were made with Adam, Noah. They were made with Abraham and Moses and David. And all these covenants, all these agreements were made between God and man. And man failed every one of those agreements. Nobody could hold up to what they thought. When they came out of Egypt, they were so thrilled, so happy what God had done. They said, Lord, whatever you say, we will do. Moses went up in the mountain, and five minutes later, they were worshiping and building a golden calf. It sort of reminds us sometimes of us. When we promise things to God, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I'm going to study the Bible every day. I'm going to pray every day. And then something happens, and, and they don't, and then they feel bad about it. And uh, when they feel bad about it, they feel guilty, and they feel they disappointed God and everything. And so we're not there anymore. We're not there making agreements with God anymore. God has made an agreement with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end, no matter what no matter what. There is only one covenant of grace throughout all of man's history. And that is the covenant of grace. There's only one, one covenant of grace. And when Christ came, the mystery was fully unveiled. The shadow became a reality. Now the covenant of grace is now the new covenant. Why? Because it was administered by grace and not by law. In the Old Testament, all of these different covenants, God said to us that he is a sovereign God. We look to him we, we don't look to ourselves. We look to him. Jesus is that promised seed of the woman who was to conquer Satan. Jesus is the seed of Abraham that would bless all nations. Jesus was the only one who kept the law perfectly. And he was the perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus is fulfillment of the long-awaited descendant of David. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. The church of the new covenant is a continuation or a successor of the church of the old covenant. In, in Ephesians 2, 
The Bible says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, and we're all Gentiles here, formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And the Bible says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Now here the Bible is talking about the Jew and the Gentile, both into one body. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, that was the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, and that was the Jewish people. And then the Bible says, for through him, we both have our access to one spirit in the Father. So Paul makes two points. First, Abraham was circumcised after he was pronounced righteous, righteous by faith. Therefore, the ritual of circumcision or <clears throat> baptism or even the Sabbath, all of these things have nothing to do with a person being saved. Absolutely nothing. Second, in that circumcision is a seal, and it is the unchangeable act. Once circumcision is done, it cannot be undone. That was the old covenant. It's the same as being born again. Once you are born again, you cannot be unreborn. It's impossible. Now, a lot of people say, well, <clears throat> I knew somebody who was a very devout Christian, and uh, they, they taught Sunday school, they went to church every day, and now they don't have anything to do with God. Can you explain that? Here they were, a devout Christian, and now they have nothing to do with God. And what does God say? God says that when he starts a good work in somebody, he's going to finish it. He's going to finish it. Through the years of evangelism, I have gone to thousands of homes who people who were once classified, I guess, as backsliders. I've always wondered, well, what is a backslider? I mean, where do they slide back to? And basically, they slide back to a legalistic lifestyle. They, they fall back to legalism, which is death. And so they fall back to death. 
They do not experience the abundant life in Christ. But as the Bible says, when God took care of the children of Israel, redemption was never in the issue. When an individual accepts Jesus Christ as their personal savior, and they are born again, they can never get unreborn. They'll always, in their core, they'll always love God at their core. Now, a lot of people get religions. They get religion, and uh, that's not it. It's not it. It's not getting religion. It's getting Jesus Christ in your life. So there's a difference between people that have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and those who got religion. There's a big difference. They've never accepted the fact that they have a new heart, they have a new spirit, because they never asked Christ to actually come in. So there are many like that. Romans 4, the Bible says this, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, which we are, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And the Bible says, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. The law brings about anger. But where there is no law, there is also is no violation. So the Bible makes it clear. What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. And then in verse 18 it says this, For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Now what do you think of the promises that God made to you. When you accepted Christ as your personal Savior, he told you that he would never leave you nor forsake you. Do you believe that? Yes, you believe that because that's what he said. That was his promise to you. His promise to you is that you would have eternal life. Do you believe it? Do you believe that right now, this very moment, if something should happen, God forbid, that you would have eternal life. Yes, because that's a promise he made. God made a promise, and he always lives up to his promise. And nothing can nullify that promise. So you are safe and secure in Christ. In Galatians 3.17, where what we just read, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So we, we stand on God's promises. We don't stand on our promises. We're, we can make promises all day long and never, never hold up to it. Um, but God stands behind his. And that's the important thing. Abraham received the gift of righteousness 430 years before the law was given. He was righteous 430 years before Moses received the Ten Commandments. What does the law require? 
of us. Well, basically it requires something that we cannot do. That's what the law does. It requires something that we cannot do. It asks us to love. In Galatians 5.14, the Bible says this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the whole law is fulfilled in love. Now, those of us through the years who have felt the Ten Commandments was still binding and still should be uh, tried to, we should still try to fulfill, we've made a big mistake. There's no question about it. The Ten Commandments ask that you love God and that you love your neighbor. That's all the Ten Commandments do. The only thing about the Ten Commandments they ask you to do it 24-7. And if you break one, James says you've breaking them all. And so God was asking us to do what was impossible for us to do. So why did he ask us to do something that was impossible? If I mean, if I cannot do this, if I cannot love, the promise that comes with the law then is useless if I can't do it. I mean, it sounds simple. Is all you have to do is love God and love your neighbor. It sounds really simple. But just nobody has done it. Ever since man, the creation of man, nobody has done it. Except Christ. Now, if I cannot do this, then I can only assume that I must try to please God in some way. Doing what I can, whatever it is, if I can just please him, if I can do what he asks me to do, I'll become righteous, I'll become worthy, and he will sense a value to me because I have certainly given it everything I could. I've tried. And the promise was, do this and live. In other words, in the Old Testament, keep my commandments, do this, and you shall live. But nobody could do it, and yet they still lived. So what is all that about? Kind of takes you back into the Garden of Eden, where God said to Adam that if you take that forbidden fruit, you will die. And he died, but he didn't die physically, he died spiritually. And the truth is that when it comes to love, I want to love everybody, but I can't. I can't love everybody. I can't even love God the way I should and the way I want to. It is not only that, <clears throat> that we will not, but we cannot. Therefore, the law is worthless in obtaining the promise. In Romans 4, 16, the Bible says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, 
so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. In the Old Testament, they were saved by faith. By faith. Wasn't the keeping of the law. It was, Abraham was saved by faith, the Bible says. 430 years before the law was given. Therefore, what works could not do, faith does. And the Bible says here in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23, So then, let no one boast in man, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things presented or things to come. All things belong to who? To you. The Bible says all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. It's sort of a chain of command. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. And doesn't the Bible tell us that we are God's gift to Jesus Christ? So when we accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior... God gave Jesus Christ us. We are, we are a gift to Jesus Christ. We have been cleansed. God cleaned us up. And at our deepest core, we are everything that God says we are. We don't feel that way a lot of times. We don't act that way a lot of times. But that's who we are. And you can't get around it. You, you can't convince yourself any other way. When God says that's who you are, that is who you are. Now, there's one thing that we have to understand. And that is, all things are yours. You've heard me say many, many times here, if you've been here for any period of time, that you have everything that you need for life and godliness. You have it all. You have everything. All things are yours if you are in Christ and Christ is of God. You have everything. Faith introduces the principle of grace. So the Old Testament was introducing us to the principle of grace. What is the principle of grace? Grace is a gift to us. God is a gift to us. So the question comes that about law and grace, they oppose each other in many, many ways. Now, I feel that we need both. And that may sound strange, but it's true. I know there are some believers who have sort of felt through their life that now that they found grace, there is no need for the law. And there's a truth to that. 
Once you find Jesus Christ, you've come to the end of the law. But it took the law to get you there. So we still need the law because it points us to Jesus Christ. The Bible says it's our tutor. It points us to Christ. It brings us to Christ. Once we have Christ, we don't need the law because now the Holy Spirit lives in us. We don't need a tablet of stone. We have the Holy Spirit guiding us, counseling us, living within us. God has given us grace to guarantee the promises that he has given to us. And that grace is purely a gift. There's not a thing that you can do to earn it. In Romans 4, 7, it says, As it is written, A father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now, this is the God that we serve. He brings life to the dead, and he calls into being that which does not exist. And then the Bible says, in hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which he had spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And then the Bible says in verse 20, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So here we find it. Abraham, without becoming weak in faith, he faced the facts. And a lot of times as Christians, we fail to face the facts. Sometimes the Christian life in our mind is, is some sort of a dreamy idealism. And sometimes it's an unrealistic look. Abraham looked at the fact he was a hundred years old. He looked at he looked at Sarah, who was ninety years old. And the first thing that he remembered was God can raise the dead. Then he remembered that God calls into existence the things that does not exist. That is the faith of Abraham, remembering what we have in God. And you've heard me many times say, it's the process of renewing of the mind. It's remembering what God says is true about you. That's how we live out the Christian life. We don't worry about things. We don't worry when the, when, the, when the world hits us, throws us for a loop. We don't worry about those things. Why? Because we remember the same thing that Abraham remembered. We serve a God who can raise the dead. We serve a God who, who calls 
into existence that does, which does not exist. In other words, God can do anything and everything. And so that's how we live the Christian life, by remembering. And so when things face us, we, we, we look at life and we say, wait a minute. I serve a God who can raise the dead. And then the Bible tells us that we're to test everything, to make sure that our faith is built and based on what Christ has done for us, what he is doing in us. That's how we base the way we live. So I ask you a question. In your mind, is heaven still a reward for obeying the commandments? Are you still living under the achieving system? Are you still trying to please God? Is your faith resting in Christ? Are you on the receiving system? You're receiving everything that God says is true about you. You start to believe it. It's a process. Believe me, it's a process. The Bible says that even Abraham's faith grew when he was remembering these things. The Bible says he was strengthened in his faith. When you and I go through that process, when we facing temptations or trials or tribulations, when we come to that process, when we come to that, we remember who we are in Christ. We are a child of the living God who can raise the dead. He can do the impossible. And we build and we base our commitment to Christ on what he says is true about us, not what we feel is true about us, what he says about us. The receiving system is trusting, abiding. That is God who gives us life. Trusting in that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful and we praise you for the wonderful commitment and the promises that you have made to us. We're thankful, Lord, for the Old Testament, for the Old Covenant that reminds us what it was all about, that you were teaching the people all about faith. And then that faith turned into grace. And now we're standing in the middle of a beautiful and wonderful, awesome God who saves us by grace, and he gives us that grace as a free gift. And our hearts are overflowed with that free gift of grace. Bless us now, I pray, for we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this message from Grace Bible Fellowship in Front Royal, Virginia. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.gracebiblefellowshipchurch.org.